What the fuck is up, world? Biali, Tlaltik Pak. We back in this bitch. Look at that. Two podcasts, two days in a row. I guess part of it is a desire to make up for the fact that although I said that I thought it was a week or a week and a half or two, maybe tops since my last podcast, it was actually a lot closer to three weeks. So like, honestly, what the fuck is wrong with me? You know what I'm saying? Uh, What is wrong with me in the sense that I'm told y'all motherfuckers that I was going to be getting these bitches out on a more consistent basis. And then I turn around and basically fucking ghost y'all for three weeks almost. Now, obviously, I'm speaking in such a way where I assume there's some sort of fucking grand responsibility on my behalf to get out to you which i understand quite well it's not it's not that crucial i get it i understand okay it's coming more from a personal level though right and the personal level here is the realization that getting these podcasts out on a consistent basis is something that i want to do personally for myself and that you know just because the coronavirus situation has us all at a virtual standstill where time is essentially melting into well it's i don't even want i can't even say rather that it's melting into one long continuous fucking blob of ooze because that's what it's always been that's what time has always been right um but thankfully for us we had carved it up in such a way because of capitalist society where it gave us the impression that you know difference occurred whether it be a different day a different dollar whether it be a different hour closer to the fucking punching out time whether it be a fucking another minute whatever the case might be you know what i'm saying spent inside the the shitter trying to avoid getting back to work you know what i'm saying um that's all that's all artificial that's artificial construct in the sense that it's you know imposed upon us by this capitalist society so just because that fucking artificial lens if you will has been removed doesn't give me personally pause to just you know immerse myself completely into the amalgamous blob of fucking time is what i'm trying to say you know what i'm saying so part of me felt this is the long way of explaining that part of me felt compelled to get back to you as quickly as possible with a new podcast and although i did leave off in my last one stating that it was going to be in regards to jordan peterson i was i'm actually in the process of of further researching it now um the the article specifically that i want to discuss for you all with you all for the next podcast but in between that i had actually started i had to lecture really quickly for my in-person obviously well now online entirely philosophy classes and as i was lecturing i actually was pretty pleased with my lecture for today um and i decided that i should i would instead uh share that as part of a podcast episode it's not meant to be linear in the sense that it's, I'm, I'm telling you now it's not picking up on where the last podcast left off on the jordan peterson one but it is just something of a of a quick aside you know what i'm saying because honestly even more reason as to why i wanted to share it is i have been speaking at length about my inevitable desire once i have a sufficient you know a fan base essentially of an audience i should state more specifically fucking that word fan is so creepy but definitely an audience that would be willing to help sustain me through my philosophical endeavors and you know uh uh actually subscribe to the patreon that i'm and that i'm still developing um and this is where it's going to consist of the lectures kind of like this you know what i'm saying so something of an effort to try to continue towards building that that you know that that crowd of people that are going to enable me to be able to do so right um i decided well fuck it let's go ahead and drop this this particular lecture as part of you know not kind of like a not a teaser per se because there's nothing there for me to sell you yet right but something of a 
it's like a future hope. This is what I hope again to be in the future where I continue to pump out these podcasts and I continue to build an audience of fucking people that I vibe with and vibe with me. Right. And that in doing so, inevitably, I get to the point where I'm able to focus entirely on, you know, not entirely, I should say, but I can build an entire Patreon platform to provide you all with these very types of lectures. You know what I'm saying? Now, um, I know that kind of, again, runs afoul. I have to say this just because I guess the inherent guilt in me, um, the inherent collectivist guilt of trying to, you know, not profiting off of this in the sense that, you know, the whole intention of hood philosophy is to liberate the knowledge. You know what I'm saying? So I still still kind of struggle with that. But at the end of the day, it's like, yo, again, your boy not only trying to get lucrative, but I'm essentially just trying to break free from the capitalist chains that we all have found ourselves just uh, thrown into simply by virtue of birth, of birth, right? So I guess that's my last qualification in regards to that. Not last. I'm going to talk about it multiple times. And in, in, <clears throat> even after it's launched and whatever the case might be, it'll, I'll still be discussing it because obviously that's how deeply it fucks with me. Anyways, so I guess before I continue, just take a quick moment to invite you all along. For those of you who have yet to do so, to follow me on social media, you can find me at OG underscore Ice Nice 13 on Instagram. You'll find it along the similar veins on Twitter and Facebook. Although, as I've mentioned before, I am not as active on those as I am on the gram. Okay. So yeah, with that in mind, I guess this introduction has been long-winded enough and I hope you enjoy my brief introduction to critical theory. This is part one of a larger uh, of a larger uh, uh, lecture series, right? And this is just part one. And I hope you enjoy it. Peace. What's up, class? Here we are. Um, this is a makeup. Uh, here we are. Um, this is a makeup uh, lecture for the lecture that I was unable to provide to you all yesterday. So I'm not even going to wait for this one to populate because no one ideally is, you know, uh, was expecting it to become at this time. So uh, for those of you that didn't get my message on Twitter, basically what happened is I had some unexpected stuff come up yesterday, so I wasn't able to do the, uh, the actual broadcast. So instead, I'm going to do it today. And for those of you who feel, uh, if you can't watch it right now, if you, were expect- if you weren't expecting to do a lecture right now, it's not a big deal. Like I've said before, you can always either go back and watch the, ad, uh, the broadcast here on Periscope. But I always post them on Blackboard. I'll be posting this one on Blackboard as soon as I'm done with it. Yeah. So with that said, uh, we're going to go ahead and switch gears just slightly into what we were, what's referred to rather as the critical theoretical method. Critical theory for short. Okay. Now, just a quick little backdrop on the critical theoretical method. You're going to find a lot of parallels with critical theory as you find with quote unquote dialectical materialism. And it's not by mistake. Okay. Basically. So let's situate it properly, actually. Critical theory comes to us during World War II era United States. And what's happening here is that you have the historical context, right? You have what's going on. It's called the Red Scare. And the Red Scare was this, this deep fear in the United States, not just the government, but also the populace of communism taking over. For those of you who are keeping abreast with the coronavirus news now, you'll see that this is one of the biggest still concerns here to this day. The fear of communism imposing itself on American soil. That's what's happening in the marches in Michigan with Florida, North Carolina, et cetera. Right? We say to ourselves, this is America. This is not a communist country. And you cannot just strip away our freedoms in the moments of pandemic as you have done so. Irrespective of the perhaps ensuing outcome that may, uh, may arise. And I'm speaking here, of course, the loss of life. Right? So this particular philosophy, it originated in a time when it was no different. In fact, if anything, it was much more severe. 
It was more severe in the sense that the repercussions for somebody who was an admitted quote unquote Marxist or communist was it could be met with, you know, terrifying repercussions, uh, whether it be like in the form of physical violence to you on a personal level, but definitely in the form of, you know, being uh, uh, a blackballed, if you will, from from work, from uh, society in general, from government uh, offices. You have what's called the McCarthyism, where this this general, this, not in general, I'm sorry, where uh, this politician, McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy, ah, not Cormac, that's the guy who wrote the book. I apologize. Uh, senator, he's, a, he's a senator or congressman. His name uh, escaped me at the moment. Anyways, the point is that he used McCarthyism as a way to gain political leverage. He would just accuse, it's basically like the Salem wish trials. He would accuse his opposition of being uh, communist, and immediately like that, he would discount any any uh, sort of uh, any ground that they had, any even any claims that they had that were potentially even good for the American people, and they were easily dismissed by simply causing them or calling them communists, right? So this is kind of where this philosophical theory is emerging from. It's taking Marxist philosophy, which we just discussed, dialectical materialism, and it's basically sublimating it okay sublimation is something we're going to discuss later on so hopefully by then you'll have a clear understanding of what it means but i i I emphasize it because it's actually a pretty genius move like they're using their own philosophical theories to subvert their own or rather to sublimate their own philosophical theory in an attempt to subvert the systems that are attempting to keep their philosophical theories out yes so the reason then that i suggest that i tell you that you'll find a lot of similarity between critical theory and uh, dialectical materialism is because it's essentially an offshoot of dialectical materialism. However, we couldn't just call it, they couldn't just call it, I should say, dialectical materialism. They couldn't just call it Marxist philosophy. They couldn't just call it communism. Why? Because obviously they were philosophizing at a time, as I just situated, where none of those were accepted and doing so would, they would never have been able to get a university job as professor doing this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? They would have never been able to lecture publicly because, you know, people would not have allowed them the space to do so out of the fear of, you know, being uh, communist sympathizers, right? So what they did instead is they created this whole new theory and they subverted the process by calling it critical theory, right? And it wasn't until people started catching on, which was long, long after a lot of this information had already been disseminated into public institutions that people started to realize like, oh, this critical theory, this critical theory stuff, it's actually just low, it's low key communist or low key Marxism essentially, right? So with that said, let's get, let's just dive into the actual philosophy, all right? And with this one in general, we have a new, a new definition of alienation, okay? Uh, This is unlike the uh, absolute idealist definition of alienation, and it's unlike the dialectical materialist definition of alienation. This is a complete different form of alienation that is concerned with reification being analyzed in terms of how it imperils the subjective human experience, how they rob the world of meaning and purpose, and how they turn an individual into a cog in a machine. So that's a long definition, and it's got a lot going on. So let's break it down one more time. I'll say it to you one more time, then I'll break it down for you bar by bar, essentially, and explain what's happening here. So when we say uh, alienation, according to the critical theoretical method, is concerned with reification and it's analyzed in terms of how it's imperiled the subjective human experience, how it robs the world of meaning and purpose, and how they turn the individual into a cog in a machine. So let's first start out with reification. Essentially, what reification means is that you're subsuming, you're taking something into a larger system, right? For those of you, uh, there was a movie, oh man, I forget the name of the movie, but it was with uh, Rihanna, and I'll never forget this movie. 
right? For this particular reason, it was Rihanna. She was like the voice actress. And it had the dude Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. He was the alien, whatever the name of the movie is, right? But um, there's a scene, spoiler alert, the movie's like five years old or ten or six years old, however long it is. Anyways, at the very end, where it's like this alien ship and it's sucking up a bunch of little aliens to try to get them to into the into the spaceship to try to escape from, you know, some threat that's coming up, right? And that's basically the way reification works. It's instead, uh, or rather, however, instead of being an alien ship, what the grand what the grand reifier is, if you will, is the society that we're living in. Okay, society that we're living in has this desire to suck in and absorb as many individual people as possible, because it is only through individual people, as we've already discussed at various points throughout the semester, that societies gain overall credence. That societies become powerful. Might makes right, or to use the actual critical theoretical language, hegemony. That's how you build a hegemony. A hegemony is just a power structure that enables you to have the, 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 the strength to influence culture, okay? So if you want to be somebody or an idea, this is where it starts to get really cool and critical theoretical idea, because essentially as the semester progresses, as rather these lectures progress, we're going to realize that it has less to do with actual individual thinking people and more so with ideas as these this agentive force, an idea as an agentive force. Like it has Ideas have their own idea and they're seeking to survive. It gives like agency and livelihood to ideas, right? I'm pulling out this book right here uh, to share it with you all. It's called The Philosophy of Mind and Cognition. Maybe some of you all are interested in reading through it. And essentially, the part, the part that I'm focusing on right now, it's uh, I'm just revisiting a part from when I was an undergraduate, just to uh, spiff you up on it, is the part on um, philosophical zombies, okay? Philosophical zombies are really cool. It's this idea that you have these things that are, they look for all intents and purposes like human beings and um, they react for all intents and purposes the way you would imagine a human being would react in any given situation with the only difference here being is that they don't have any feelings or any sense of emotion or like actual feeling, physical feeling, right? So in reality, you don't really know if they're a human or not because you would have to be able to, you know, look through their, their biological composition. And even if you did, you would find a startling startlingly human-like uh, uh, being, which leads us to believe that they are humans. But if this critical theoretical method is correct, maybe they are humans, or maybe they've been they've been overcome, if you will, with uh, a virus of sort. I, I hate to use that language, given the current environment that we find ourselves in, but the virus in this sort is terrible ideas, right? Terrible ideas that we're going to find that the critical theorists are going to say are always, it just always happens whenever you've got uh, the rise of right-wing right-wing authoritarianism and those ideas of course are such uh things such as uh, uh the pathological purity this idea say for instance of racial purity for instance and uh the desire of, of extreme nationhood nationalism right those are all some of the ideas that emerged uh, that critical theory is going to try to warn us about and essentially then what they're saying is that this is how reification is attempting to work it's trying to get people uh at the most fundamental level to join in, because the only way that you can get something like Nazi Germany, which is what they were philosophizing against initially, the what's referred to as the Frankfurt School, right? Um, that's what they were revert. That's what they were philosophizing uh, initially against. But this is historically speaking; these are historical, you know, occurrences that occur all throughout human history. Um, and essentially, then, is that the only way that you can get something like the the the, the Nationalist Socialist Party of Germany, the Nazis, is you got to you, obviously you're going to start small. No one Hitler didn't just walk into Germany. And start saying that he wanted to, you know, uh, take over the world and, you know, uh, commit Holocaust and all that kind of nonsense. It started off small. It started off one person at a time. 
And then that's how the reification works. You just try to get as many people into your group, your hegemony as possible. And then from there, you use them, you use them essentially as puppets, as zombies to, to, uh, to fulfill your needs and your wants and your desires, okay? So when they say then that its reification is being analyzed in terms of how it imperils the subjective human experience, essentially what it's trying to say then is that in this process, you as an individual subjective person, as an individual human being, you're essentially jeopardizing this ability to have a sub, like an actual human experience because whatever opportunity that you had to have an actual quote-unquote human experience has now been sacrificed for the quote-unquote greater good, if you will, of whatever the hegemonic force is that is attempting to utilize you as a means of you know, delivering its overall greater agenda, okay? So uh, my favorite example of this, of course, you've heard me harp about it multiple times, is the stupid Dallas Cowboys, right? I'm sorry for all you Dallas Cowboy fans. Obviously, I'm not a Dallas Cowboy fan, um, but I was raised to be a Dallas Cowboy fan, and I was raised a bunch of Dallas Cowboy fans. And I just, I gotta, re- I gotta say over and over again, it was awful, right? Um, and at this particular point now, rather than focus on the own subjective personal part, we'll focus instead on how the Dallas Cowboys actually works. Consider, for instance, if you removed every single Dallas Cowboy fan from the city of El Paso, from the state of Texas, from the United States of America, and you made them all Oakland Raider fans, for instance, okay? What then would that imply for the Dallas Cowboys? It would mean that their hegemony, their team, their their their, their livelihood, in, in a nutshell, essentially, right, would diminish, okay? And the Cowboys know this. So instead, they engage in public relations operations to ensure that they will always have a consistent fan base that they need in order to ensure their guaranteed survival. That's why you have things such as the Dallas Cowboys, America's team, right? It's, it's, it's a catchphrase that was invented by a corporation somewhere that you know was intended to make people associate something as powerful as the United States of America with the Dallas Cowboys because doing so would ensure that the Dallas Cowboys would have uh, uh, they would tap into these patriotic stirrings, if you will, of individuals who say, well, I'm an American, and if the Dallas Cowboys are America's team, then I guess I'm, an Amer- I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, right? That's kind of what they're saying is that now then, that person who potentially could have been a Raiders fan and all the things that are associated with Raider fandom, right, is now a Dallas Cowboy fan, and their initial agency has been removed from them in the process. Now, obviously, sports are a very, they're a very trifling example, Okay. It's just very bare, basic, very, very blasé example. Let's take it to some serious stuff, though, such as religion and politics. You know what I'm saying? Ideas of nationhood. Most of us identify with our religion because we believe that it's the correct one. But in reality, if the critical theoretical method is correct, religion in itself is just this giant entity that is seeking to survive. And the only way that it can do so, obviously, is if it has people who are worshiping the religion. And if it doesn't have people worshiping the religion, obviously the religion will fade away into obscurity. So instead, what happens is the religion actively goes out and it, I I hate to use this language, again, barring, you know, given the the environment that we find ourselves in, but this is kind of the underlying idea with critical theoretical method. It infects people with this ideology and it ensures that it continues to propagate the ideology in order to ensure its continued survival. And it does so at the direct expense of the human experience. So think about it. For those of you who were raised strictly or rather very uh, in a very strict religious household, you could ideally, maybe maybe you enjoyed it. Let's say that you didn't though, right? Let's just assume that you didn't enjoy growing up in a strictly religious, in a strict religious household. It imperils your subjective human experience because you could have this whole time been living a life that was free 
of whatever it is that the given religion that you find yourself being raised in asks of you. And instead, you had to you had to put aside all those desires just to try to appease a godlike entity that may or may not even exist. You know what I'm saying? You could have eaten the shellfish. You could have worn the different color articles of clothing. If you were a gay person, you could have been openly gay without fear of any sort of repercussion at all whatsoever. But now that fear, or rather that uh, that experience, that subjective experience, has been imperiled because of this alienating force called the, re- uh, the uh, of religion, right? It has reified you. It has sucked you into its grand superstructure for no other reason than to ensure its continued survival, okay? And then from there, we get to the next part of the definition, which tells us this rob, this serves to rob the world of meaning and purpose, okay? Because essentially, uh, what all these grand superstructures are reduced to is nothing more than conformity at the cost of the individual person, meaning that the most important thing is the survival of the institution. And that no matter what you have to go through uh, as an individual person, it's the survival of this institution in turn that is the only thing that matters. And usually that reduces people to these very basic blasé existences, okay? And that this in turn leads to the next part where it is the cog in the machine where you realize that you're not really a unique individual anymore so much as you are just this part, this functioning part in a grander whole that is keeping this operation moving. And generally speaking, it's probably not even in your best interest, okay? So from there, we get into what they're going to refer to as one of their main concerns, and that is a meaningless existence that is devoid of any authenticity, okay? So again, it's the meaningless existence that is devoid of any authenticity. So uh, what I mean by this is that, again, consider that in the absence of any divine purpose, in the absence of any godlike being, okay? It's understood that it's incumbent upon people to give our own lives meaning and value, okay? And if that is, in fact, the case, and if we do not actively pursue giving our life meanings and value, then essentially we're left with no other option than to subsume, to assume the character that's given to us by society, okay? Generally, this comes in the form of personality structures, right? Uh, we'll talk about personality structures at a later, at a, in a later lecture, but for now... The basic idea is that you're given this, like, it's like a cardboard cutout, right? You're saying, like, uh, uh, it's like a default mode of being where you're, just, you're, you're born or whatever, and given whatever circumstances that you're born in, let's say El Paso, Texas, because this is where we are, right? If you're born a male, you have this default personality of what a typical El Paso male is. If you're born a female, you're, you're, you have this cardboard cutout of what a, a cookie cutter cutout, rather, of what an El Paso female is, right? Um, there's plenty of great memes on my personal favorite Instagram page, FitFam, right? And occasionally they'll update it every now and then, and they'll talk about the, the typical El Paso guy, and they'll talk about the typical El Paso girl, right? You know them, I know them, you're more than likely, like myself, are one of them. Uh, you know, the jokes hit really hard, but that's the, uh, that's the basic idea with this critical theoretical method when they say the reason... We have so many of these typical El Paso guys and typical El Paso girl starter packs, typical American, typical Donald Trump supporter, typical Hillary Clinton supporter, typical Christian, typical atheist, all that kind of stuff, right? Is because realistically, they're just identity packs. They're just starter packs, if you will, right? uh, personality structures. I call them uh, starter packs, obviously, because of the memes, right? Meme culture. But there's just these ideas that we subsume, that we kind of just fall into for no other reason than we realize that most of us have not gone out of our way to develop our own personality. It's very hard to do, A, and B, 
it's uh, uh, it's actually very terrifying. And the terrifying part is when we get into the existentialism later. Uh, but the central gist is that the realization that, you know, if God is quote unquote truly dead, as Nietzsche proclaims, then we are alone in this universe and everything we're entirely responsible for ourselves. And that is a haunting proposition. Okay. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. For now, uh, we'll simply, let's see, go down a little bit. Uh, let's go a little bit further. I guess we could pick up here where it's basically telling us is that uh, I guess picking up where I left off, where we're left again to confront the reality that all of us then we can't really claim to be unique individuals, especially if we've never taken the time to de-socialize, if you will, to take a third person stance, take an objective opinion of, of who we actually are as a person, as opposed to who we are told that we are as people, who we were raised to believe that we are as people, you know what I'm saying? And that, um, in light of this, that we're nothing more than ultimately than the manifestation of the quote unquote purpose that was predefined by this particular role that we play in society. Okay. So um, it's not that the possibility, for instance, doesn't exist to become an actualized person, an authentic person, so much so that that desire to be so is complicated by the realization that simply claiming to be a unique individual for any reason is not really enough of an actual reason to be so, right? Um, the best way that I can explain this is there's always niche groups of people, right? You might be like the most, you might consider yourself to be one of the most quote unquote unique individuals ever. But if you look hard enough and you look, you will find people who are almost nearly identical to you, right? Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just, ex I'm just trying to explain just how in fact difficult it is to truly be a unique individual person, to truly live an authentic experience. And that's what these critical theoretical, uh, critical theorists are most concerned with. And it becomes, this is where it starts to get really cool, right? Uh, well, I think the whole thing's cool. But anyways, um, this for me personally, really interesting part is even when people do find something unique and interesting, these corporations, they have entire PR firms dedicated to finding out any sort of deviation that somebody may find from the already predetermined patterns of behavior that they have constructed for their overall good, right? And if somebody does seem to manage to find like a deviation from the norm, if you will, they will follow them in such a way to exploit it in order to make the system larger and encompass uh, and, and, and make space rather for the people who are deviating from the norm. So the best example that I can give you is about, um, oh, I don't know, four years ago, three years ago, when President Trump first took office and the whole quote-unquote resist movement was in, in full effect, right? Uh, you would see it everywhere on social media. People were talking about resist, not my president and all that kind of stuff, right? And it was a very chic thing to be doing at that moment. And the, the pinnacle of the chic hood, if you will, for me personally, came when there was a, 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 a company in New York City, I believe, I want to say it was Barney's, right? It's one of those high-end fashion corporations that made a $500 resist jacket, right? And that's basically what it was. It was a quote-unquote anarchy jacket demonstrated to, or designed to demonstrate the person who was paying $500 for it, their frustration with the current political uh, atmosphere, right? You can find it online. Just look it up. $500 resist jacket. It's got a little uh, anarchy sign perfectly painted, right? It's got resist written like in bold letters right here. It's, just, it's pretty hilarious. And the point is essentially is that people might think that we're being unique and individuals and we're trying to stray from, you know, the norm that's been provided for us. But in reality, 
what critical theory is telling us is, yo, you got to stay woke, bro. Why? Because these corporations out here that are trying to make as much money as possible, they're, they're just as woke as you are. You know what I'm saying? And they're finding all the ways that people are trying to escape the matrix, if you will, trying to subvert the system. And they're following you in order to corral you right back into the system with the idea that you have escaped when in reality, you've only escaped into something that they have planned for you in advance. Okay. So, um, yeah, because this is obviously how alienation and reification works, right? It serves ultimately to disassociate you from yourself, that subjective person that has their own unique experiences and desires and replace it instead with the ideals and desires of any institution in question, whether it be society, whether it be government, whether it be dialectical materialism, whether it be uh, absolute idealism, whether it be radical skepticism, whether it be the Dallas Cowboys, whether it be Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, it doesn't matter. You know, all grand ideas that are trying to seek to survive using you, me, and every other individual on this planet as the vehicles for which to do so, the hosts, if you will, for which to do so, right? And if we're being honest, um, many of these impact us at, on multiple levels at, at, on a daily basis. So what I mean by that is people, most people, we're not quote unquote one dimensional. Well, some people are going to, some of these critical theories, I don't have the book on hand here, so I'm not going to get it. But one of them in particular, the one that we're going to focus on before we're done with this on Wednesday, his name is Herbert Marcuse. And what he's going to say is, yeah, we are one dimensional, right? We call, his book is called The One Dimensional Man. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's kind of a different idea of what he refers to through the one dimensional man. But, um, for our purposes, the one dimensional man essentially is these people, it's the realization that for this purpose, I should say, to be very clear, um, we're not necessarily one dimensional creatures. Many of us have multiple identities that we occupy at any given moment, as was given the example of the avocado and the artichoke, right? Many of us are parents, siblings. Uh, or, you know, sons and daughters, husbands, wives, grandparents. Um, but also we are students. We are employees. We are also Dallas Cowboy uh, or Oakland Raider fans. But we are also at the same time Chicago Cubs fans. We're also at the same exact time as all of that. Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians. We're also at the same time of all of that. Gay, straight, transgendered. We're all sorts of different things. All meshed and into one. Okay. And the reality then is that Ideally, we like to believe that those all of those identities are our own are, are, are the own reflection of ourself with a capital S. You know what I'm saying? But in reality, if this critical theory is correct, it's nothing more than a bunch of different labels, identities, personality structures, more specifically, that have been created by the given society that we're living in in order to ensure that we continue to operate within these very narrow frameworks that they have created. Um, I'm looking for a book in particular here. It's not this one, but there's plenty of historical books that you can research. It, one of my, it's actually over there, but I don't feel like getting up to go get it because I don't want to leave you all with the, with the dead air. But it's called um, The Long and Winding Road of the American Eighth, uh, from the 18th century to the 20th century. It's a really long name, right? But it's called The Long and Winding Road of American History from the 18th century to the 21st century, I believe. That's 20th century, right? Anyways, the whole point of that book highlights ways in which things such as ethnicity were created, the ways sexual identity were created, the ways uh, uh, um, uh, gendered identities were created, right? And essentially what they all revolve around is something I talked about before with absolute idealism, and that is uh, uh, citizenship, American citizenship, 
right? But in this terms of critical theory, then, is that how many of us focus so deeply on how we believe that these identities are our actual self, when in reality, they're nothing more than, as I spoke earlier, constructs that were created by the institution at large, in this case, the United States government, right, in order to ensure that we put people into these boxes that we can conveniently understand and then utilize them in such a way to advocate for our own interest at any given moment. Okay, so right now, for instance, not right now, because, you know, everything is just crazy right now. But prior to this whole, uh, what is it, coronavirus pandemic, uh, one of the biggest issues, for instance, was um, it was a lot of identity politics talk going on. Okay, Uh, now I'm not here to say one way or another in regards to identity politics, but I will say this. One thing about the identity politics situation that unfolded was that it played directly into what the critical theories were trying to say. And that is that identity politics, for better or for worse, like when I say I'm not trying to discuss, what I'm, when I say I'm not trying to get into it is that there was some important parts that came out of identity politics, right? Talking about equality for gays, women, and minorities. That's very important, okay? But the, 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 the obverse side of that is where people started focusing on issues strictly from the identity of a woman, from a, a, a brown person, from a gay person, or from a gay brown woman. You know what I'm saying? And they and they focus their entire political agenda, their entire political ideology, based off that one personality structure. Why? Because realistically, unless that particular person in question, right, had taken a step back to examine what it is exactly that a gay brown woman is in this particular instance, right, her own true self, okay, or his own true self, um, chances are that those identities that they were identifying with, again, in this case, let's go with a, a gay brown woman. Yes, they were created by the United States government. Like it's very clear historical record. So although, you know, you have in this case, then these, these people who are trying to advocate against the United States government, they are doing so in a way that is cre- it's controlled by the United States government. It's controlled opposition, essentially. Why? Because the United States government essentially defined what it means to be a gay brown woman. And as such, whatever identity politics that this person had to lob at a Donald Trump character, it's not going to be, it's not, it's not effective at all. And it's, it was meant to not be effective because that's the whole point is you, is you essentially, you neuter, if you will, uh, these, these critiques in such a way where they don't pose any serious knockdown objection to the people in power, Right. So this is kind of what they're trying to say, these critical theoretical, these critical theorists, when they're saying that, yeah, these identity politics, these personality structures, more specifically, they're not really good. Why? Because they're created by the very same people that these people think falsely that they're trying to, uh, uh, that they're they're, they're, uh, resisting against, if you will, to to keep the continuity between the language. When in reality, you're not resisting to anything, man. Uh, A more perhaps prescient example that I can give you is the current, not current, it got canceled. But Rage Against the Machine, man, they were scheduled to perform here in El Paso. And, you know, everybody was really excited. And I'm not going to front myself included. I was excited for about five minutes. And then I realized, okay, there's only one of two opportunities. There's only one of two possibilities here. Either Rage Against the Machine is going to keep it really 100% gangster, and they're going to perform a live show because they're Rage Against the Machine. That's what they do. They Rage Against the Machine, right? Or their tickets are going to be astronomically expensive and they're going to be nothing more than another example of bands that sell out their core principles in order to ensure the maximum amount of profits. To which, of course, for those of you who are hip to the Rage Against the Machine news in El Paso, 
that turned out to be the case, right? They didn't, they sold out any sort of credibility, at least in my eyes, right? When they were selling tickets for $300 and they tried to justify it by saying that the overprice was an attempt to undercut the scalpers and that it was going to go to donations. Not the point, right? The point is that Rage Against the Machine, they are the machine. They are part of the machine, right? But for better or for worse, you got to, you know, artists deserve to get paid and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that much of what they say, much of what they sing about, it now you don't see it as much of a critique against dominant power structures as you see it as something that essentially, to put it simply, the dominant power structures allow us to hear because doing so satiates and neuters our desire to go off and make any actual real change that we'll listen to Rage Against the Machine and think to ourselves, yes, I'm making a difference because I listen to a band that is not on KLAQ. When in reality, the people who, you know, played that band, they filtered that band long before they even got to your ears, my ears. And they said, okay, this one right here, this one will suffice because although they are sufficiently threatening, they are not entirely threatening and will not completely overthrow or dissolve whatever power structure that it is that we have in place at any given moment, right? So, um... The same is true, of course, with other sorts of ideologies, whether it be religious ideologies, extremism, uh, political ideologies and extremism. It's all the same case, right? It's all, it's all the same hustle, essentially. And that's essentially is where the critical theoretical method is trying to come along and tell us then that the real goal, the real goal is to recognize this and seek to overcome it for the purposes of living an authentic life. Okay? So, yeah. I think now is just as good a time as any to go ahead and put this lecture to an end. Obviously, there's only one of you on here now, so I'm, I'm assuming you don't have a question. If you do, I'll be more than happy to answer it. Um, I'll be back tomorrow, Wednesday, at our normal time, 5.30. So for those of you that do have questions watching this, please, by all means, feel more than free to uh, bring them to me. And until then, I hope you all have a great rest of your day, and I'll see you tomorrow, Wednesday, at 5.30. Peace.